today. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Marcel Proust, Young Cliff, Theory Elfsepp, and why even though you can't be with the one you love, you still can't love the one you're with. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Hi, Sepp. Hello, Cliff. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, Cliff. How are, uh, how are you this fine February 14th? I'm doing pretty well, Sepp, because I'm looking forward to spending this episode talking to you about theories of love. Theories of love. Have you ever heard of a theory of love that says that love is about two souls forming a connection and coming to know each other in their most intimate authenticity and bonding to form a real union? Yeah, yeah. Mutual recognition. I see you. True love, like in the, in the movies. So do you think that the most important thing for love, the most romantic thing to do is to share openly, talk about your desires and needs and feelings and your inner thoughts so that you each know each other better than you know yourselves and two can become one? Oh, yeah. I love that. That doesn't make me nauseous at all. <laughs> you, uh, you sound a little uncomfortable, Sepp. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why you asked me for this episode, because I'm so comfortable talking about intimacy. Well, not to worry. That is not what I want to talk about today. Oh, thank God. I want to talk about a different theory of love that is a, a little weirder, a little Frencher, and a little less intimate. And I'm talking about the theories of love of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I'm going to supplement it a little bit with um, another author, Marcel Proust. Nice. But first, before we get to them, I want to tell you a little story from my own life. Go for it. I can't wait. I'm 20 years old. I had just finished a year of university in business school and I thought it was done so I quit and then worked to save up some money so I could go check out Europe. I moved to Paris into a property that was actually in the suburbs of Paris and it was a couple of houses with 40 odd people living there, mostly students from all over the world, uh, living together away from home. And I don't know, um, if you know what this is like, but I was a rube, a provincial. I had never left North America. This was my first international flight, and everything in this place was kind of magical to me. The windows in the houses, the way they paved their streets, just going to the boulangerie to buy bread, it was all <laughs> cool and exciting. To this day, when I smell diesel exhaust in the air, it makes me nostalgic for Paris because <laughs> there's an association there. <laughs> Of all the things. I don't know. You know, it's just like, why a tea-soaked madeleine? Why the smell of diesel? It just it just so happened that way. I love it. Have you ever had that when you get to a place and everything is just invested with extra significance because of, of where it is? Uh, was was Oxford like that when, when you got there? That was Oxford, yeah. Because it, it was just so weird and otherworldly. And so everything that I did there 
I didn't have to like try and make everything more magical, which I, which is what I usually do. It was already, <laughs> <laughs> it was already built into the architecture, let's say, and that was, yeah, it was. Um, it kind of everything gets a little hazy, you know. Everything gets like a little, uh-huh. uh, like a filter over it. So, I, if the, if that's what you mean, yes, that's exactly what I mean. Paris was like that for me at this time. I'm young. I'm away. I'm having the time of my life in this magical place, and that is where I meet a girl who I will call Anna. I remember when I met her. I was playing. <laughs> I was playing PlayStation with three other guys, and <laughs> for a guy who was visiting a cultural center for the first time <laughs> in his life, I spent a lot of time playing PlayStation. Um, and and in walks this girl, big uh, dyed red hair, like light, light, light blue eyes and like dark olive skin. She was visiting Paris from Sweden, but her background was uh, Middle Eastern. I act normal. Hello, my <laughs> name is Cliff. Nice to meet you. She leaves and um, I turn to the other guys and say, can we just take a moment to appreciate how gorgeous Anna is? And... Um, one of the guys says, yeah, she's pretty, but, you know, forget about her. She has got a fiancé back home. He's very jealous. Whoa. And they're in a serious relationship, so, so don't even think about it. Time goes on. We live in the same house. We cross each other's paths now and again. We run into each other one time, I remember, on the subway in Paris, so I get to ride with her all the way back home. Um, <laughs> we get to chit-chat, and that was really exciting for me. And one thing leads to another, and we start having a kind of on-again, off-again affair. We're supposed to be a secret. I am not to be seen with her in public because of her other relationship, but I'm still super excited to spend time with her. Uh, There's some romantic stuff. I think I got her a nice bracelet from somewhere on the Champs-Élysées. When her, her family came to visit, I remember climbing a wall and stealing some flowers to to give to her little sisters to impress her and and her sisters stuff oh, like that wow that's so novelly <laughs> i know <laughs> i was a hack but i was 20 come on <laughs> was she was she the same age or was she older like because she was engaged uh, yeah i think i she was like a couple of years older than me i guess but right. I, I i couldn't say i couldn't say with certainty anyway um that went on kind of on again off again for about 2 months Eventually, one of us had to leave Paris. I can't even really remember who. And, uh, you know, I, I gave her a letter saying how great she made me feel. And that was it. And we, we parted ways. So if she was one of your big crushes and it was on again, off again, were you like super miserable when it was off again? You know, uh, I, I wasn't. All of my memories about this are pretty positive. <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't regard that we would ever, like, have a future together because of, you know, she had another relationship, lived in a different country, et cetera, et cetera. I was just glad to be there. You know what I mean? Okay, so when it was definitely over, you weren't, like, like on a scale of one to young Werther, how heartbroken <laughs> were you? <laughs> yeah, again, I don't think, like, I, I was sad, but not, I wasn't heartbroken. I was just, that was, that was great, you know? Okay, so then how did you know at the time that this was one of your big crushes of your life or is this something that 
because you've lived now and you've had stuff to compare it to now you you know well both so i think like at the time i was so young that at that age they all seem like big important crushes if you if you have a crush right yeah that's um, true. <laughs> that makes sense but but this one even as i as i got older this one was important i think for two reasons one is that it was just like really strong just mm-hmm. the like weird crush like elation and excitement to see her <laughs> that i had at that time is like scarcely been reproduced in my life like we've come close but it was strong um but the reason i keep coming back to this relationship in my mind over the years is because it posed a really sharp question if the ideal of love that i described earlier of of <laughs> love as being about communication and transparency and this connection and union of souls if that's true and i believed it was true and i still kind of hope that it's true then <laughs> what was happening with anna yeah you you didn't particularly get married or anything yeah <laughs> look at the facts we didn't spend that much time together she had another relationship i didn't have any hope for the future i was purely a side thing and it didn't bother me at all and yet I didn't see it as just a sexual hookup. I really got to enjoy all those romantic feelings that that you get. And that is what we call in the biz a counterexample to the dominant theory. Hmm, interesting. And so you think you think you can explain it now? Well, I don't know that, you know, anyone can fully explain any important experience in their life, but <laughs> I did get closer, and what brought me closer were the theories that I studied when I returned to Paris 4 years after this relationship. Theory time. Yes, Sep, it is theory time. <laughs> After all that stuff with Anna, I dick around in Europe some more, go back to Canada, switch into politics and philosophy and university, finish my degree, and then, three years later, I'm back in Paris doing research for a master's degree this time on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I think the fastest way to explain Rousseau is to start with the Enlightenment, 18th century France, Voltaire, Diderot, trying to get rid of superstition and tradition and found a new social order based on human reason and science and freedom. Yeah, yeah, good. The age of reason. Exactly. And Rousseau is the opposite of that. His first big essay is about how progress in the arts and sciences actually brings about moral corruption, so he's against them. And his whole thing is that all this talk about reason and science, you're just showing off. You'd be better off being a simple peasant focused on virtue and getting more acquainted with what really matters, which is the sentiments of nature, the sweet <laughs> feelings of the human heart. Yeah, he's angry at the Enlightenment. 
Yes, uh, definitely he is angry at the Enlightenment. And now we know him as the social contract guy, as a political theorist, but that's not how he started out. Then he was doing all sorts of stuff. He was a musician. He wrote a really popular opera. Then his biggest hit was a best-selling romance novel that was so popular Women were proposing marriage to him from all over Europe, and men were writing him fan mails telling about how much they cried. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. People don't see him that way at all now. He's a political theorist. But then he was like this pan-European superstar intellectual with the expertise in the human heart. <laughs> and if you want to know his theory of love, it's all over his writings, but the best place to look and the book that I want to talk about now is Emil. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, the Emil is a treatise on education. And the question is, is it possible to raise a child so they won't be corrupted by society? Because you remember how much Rousseau hates modern society. Right. But it's different from your normal treatise on education because it's written in the first person. It reads like a novel. And... Rousseau is the narrator, he's the tutor, and he imagines someone's given him a baby boy, and he talks about all the things he would do to educate this boy to make sure he turns out to be a great guy who can survive in society. Okay. The education is super intense. The tutor completely controls everything that happens to the boy. Every game he plays, every person he talks to, everything he sees is controlled by the tutor to teach him some kind of lesson. So... The boy's education is as immersive and intense as the education of the guardians in the Republic. But it's all just done by one tutor instead of this totalitarian city. Right, right. So the tutor teaches him a trade and how to read and do math and all that stuff. But the most important part of his education comes in the last chapter, which is the longest chapter, when the tutor has to find Emile a wife. Uh, all in a day's work as a teacher. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. There's this long treatise on education. And then at the end, Rousseau kind of just tacks on uh, a romance novel. But this chapter of the book is the best place to go if you want to find out how Rousseau thinks that love works. How does he think love works? I'm so glad you asked. If you ever want to know how to make a man fall in love, <laughs> this is what Rousseau thinks you have to know. I thank God. The first thing you need to know is that seduction starts way before you even meet the people that you might be getting together with because everyone has these erotic imaginations and preconceived ideas of what's attractive and what kind of person is worth going for. Maybe you model it on your parents. Maybe you saw some hot music videos when you were a kid. Maybe you found some dirty magazines on the way home from school. But the point is, you already have an erotic imagination formed by experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. So the tutor, he starts when Emile's like getting to be a teenager and starting to get interested in girls and have that energy. <laughs> they like stay up at night talking about the perfect woman. <laughs> So, like, there's this... Oh, creepy! Very awkward, like, this is not a... This education method would probably not be ethical now, but anyway, they stay up. They're talking about, like, the perfect girl. What's she like? What does she look like? Oh, she's so virtuous. Uh, she's a bit shy. She's smart, but not too smart, right? 
like decent, not too vain, um, good family. And so he's thinking of all these things. Rousseau, the tutor, is trying to like mold Emile's erotic imagination. So it's like mm. pointed towards the right kind of girl. Right. And they get really specific. What she'll look like, how she'll dress. They even give her a name. They say, hey, why not just call our fantasy girl Sophie? Okay. The energy source that Rousseau is going to use to build romantic love is sexual desire. But he thinks that desire, when it starts, is inchoate. It's undefined. You're interested. Emile has desires, but he doesn't really know what exactly he wants. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, an ember that the tutor wants to blow on and grow and inflame till he can sublimate it into something more serious, romantic love. And it works by this dialectic of you have a little bit of desire and that sets your imagination going. And then your imagination, you think of what a great girl Sophie is, and that increases your desire, which increases your imagination. So it's this loop between desire and imagination that feeds back into itself and grows and grows until you get a serious romantic commitment. Right. But one key to keeping this whole engine running is you can't nut. <laughs> so <laughs> Rousseau has got Emile on this program as soon as he is at the age for jacking off. <laughs> The tutor is on him all the time. He never leaves him alone in a room. He uh, makes him do lots of exercises in the day, so he's too tired to jack off at night. And then... Wasn't Rousseau a notorious masturbator? Yes, Rousseau was a notorious masturbator. He believed it was a serious problem for him. He called it... Ah, he didn't... It wasn't the ideal... uh, It was an ideal. Right, because he's like, all this energy I was wasting on myself, I could have been falling in love, you know? Instead, he was just, like, making up love stories in head and spanking it. <laughs> okay, and so he wants a better life for Emil. He wants a better, no-fap life for Emil. <laughs> so once Emil's uh, imagination is prepared with this image of virtuous Chase Sophie, and he's full of all this 20-year-old desire that he doesn't really fully understand, that's when the tutor arranges a meet-cute. <laughs> He takes him out into the forest. They're on some whatever mission and it happens to get dark or raining and they take refuge in this family's house who's going to offer them hospitality. And they just happen to have a daughter, Emile's age. Wow. And that daughter's name just happens to be Sophie. And then he's so weirded out, he runs away and never comes back. Exactly the opposite. <laughs> exactly the opposite. Um, he hears her name is Sophie. He's like, oh my God, it's her. It's my dream girl that we've been talking about all these years. Uh, <laughs> oh God, Russo's an idiot. <laughs> but like in a smart way. You, you don't have to back up off of idiot. This is a far-fetched and crazy story. And uh, everything in Russo is like that. But... <laughs> So is what happens next. Emile and Sophie meet. They have this little romance where they hang out a bit, but then they can't stay. They have to, the tutor and Emile have to leave. Right. And they come back and see Sophie. But sometimes she doesn't say much. She will talk about nature in the world, but she won't talk about love or herself very much. <laughs> the tutor takes away Emile on some other education mission. So there's all these obstacles getting in their way and blocking Emile. Very intricate. 
It is very intricate. Every time he tries to talk about marriage or romance, he says, you can't talk about that to me. So all of this stuff, all of these blockages are just inflaming his desires even more. It's (laughs) desire, imagination, obstacle, desire, imagination, obstacle, until he's in full-blown romantic love and wants to do anything, give away his fortune, whatever he has to do, just to be with Sophie. And of course, what she wants him to do is what he wants to do, which is to be the most virtuous man possible. (laughs) So he's got the perfect education. He's a virtuous man and he's going to keep being a virtuous man because he's doing it for the love of a good woman, Sophie. They go away together and that is the happy ending of Rousseau's (laughs) treaties on education. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's pretty great. I'm joking. He's he's pretty great. So what do you think of all that? This book is not universally popular. So sweet, disgusting, creepy, what do you think? All of those things. I mean, uh, the idea of uh, creating, a like thinking about how to create a lasting marriage, one that is actually really fueled by true affection and connection rather than you know, pragmatic um, considerations. I think that's it's a noble pursuit. But yeah, then it gets a little weird <laughs> <laughs> because you can't engineer this stuff, probably. As a theory, I, I like it. I, you just have to not think about it too much in terms of <laughs> yeah. practical implications. Right. No, well, as a theory, I like it. Uh, me too. And the reason I brought up this theory specifically is because... You remember right at the beginning, I was talking about the theory of love, where it's all about communication and getting to know each other and connection. Well, I think Rousseau's theory is the exact opposite of that. Because Emile and Sophie, they don't really connect. It's all happening in Emile's imagination. Mm. His imagination is prepped ahead of time by the tutor, and then it's fueled by all his young guy's sexual energy and... Sophie is kind of just there as a projection screen for his own fantasies. Right. Okay. Okay. She stays chaste. She doesn't say too much. And he has this whole sexual psychodrama in his own head and is never really, really connecting with Sophie. At least that's how how I read it. Let me read you a quote. It's like a nice quote which summarizes uh, his his thought on this. Yes. Yeah. Right? Go for it. Um, quote. And what is true love itself if it is not chimera, lie, and illusion? We love the image we make for ourselves far more than we love the object to which we apply it. If we saw what we love exactly as it is, there would be no more love on earth. (laughs) When we stop loving, the person we loved remains the same as before, but we no longer see her in the same way. The magic veil drops and love disappears. Harsh. But... Kind of cool. I, I, I like it. It's kind of cool. Like the idea of it's a fantasy and you fall in love with your own fantasy. And uh-huh. It also makes sense. Like you shouldn't text back too soon. You know, you shouldn't be too available. <laughs> right. Like all that stuff, right? Yeah. Well, that's kind of a funny thing about Rousseau because he's an old timey sexist and all of his ideas are politically repellent right now. <laughs> But a lot of those same ideas still get circulated as everyday uh, dating advice. (laughs) 
can I ask one more thing? So as I understand it, there's also, so it's not just when a guy sees a girl in his imagination and all that stuff, it's also the other way around. So Rousseau thinks that's also how it goes for women. Kind of. For Sophie, yes. Sophie has a very strong imagination and she falls for Emil partly because he reminds her of a character in a book she used to read when she was a kid. Okay. But in general, when you start talking about gender in Rousseau, this is getting into the political implications of his ideas of love, which is one of the big reasons that feminists hate him. So then why um, why are the political ramifications so... Well, to start, he advocates really strong gender differentiation. He wants women to be women and chaste and modest and kind of manipulative Mm -hmm. um, and good at arithmetic but not geometry. A lot of weird stuff. And men should be a bit dumb socially but independent and free and virtuous. Whoa. Right. And another big reason that feminists or any modern person tends to hate Rousseau is that he is strongly in favor of sex-segregated societies. He likes ancient Greece, where the women and children had to live in a separate part of the house from the men and weren't allowed out in public very much. He likes Geneva, where men and women live together in their family home, but they're separate a lot. Men hang out in their clubs to drink and play cards, and women stay in the house and gossip. Rousseau thinks that men and women should come together sometimes, but most of their life should be separate. Right. So uh, he wants Sharia law. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically. (laughs) That's cultural Uh, appropriation, man. (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. I um, I bring it up. I I think maybe our listeners know that I'm originally from Iran. And there uh, you have laws against um, sort of men and women mingling too much in public. It is, it's uh, purposefully set up to be like this sex segregated society. But it's not, I think, to um, develop this sort of romantic love or create that in people. It's, uh, I, it's more based on Islamic law and it's, it's about like creating a... a a family unit that is lasting. So it's really mm-hmm. about um, the the structure of the family and sort of an and and um, uh, and, and family honor. So uh, all the extended family is involved and stuff. And it's more about that. It's about strengthening okay. those bonds rather than. Um, or is that also the case for so like the ultimate end is okay is the family unit or is it really about creating romantic emotions in people. Okay, so it's all of them. (laughs) Love, politics, the family are all connected because to have good politics, uh, you need citizens. To have citizens, you need families. Children need fathers. And the only way children are going to have fathers (laughs) is if the men are in love enough with the women to actually want to stick around and mm-hmm. the only way they'll stay deeply in love with them is if, like, <laughs> they leave them alone for most of the day. Right? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I guess I guess that could work. It's one way to do it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's one way to do it, but it's like, this is why Rousseau is really tough, right? Because what are his solutions are either 
<laughs> like, find yourself a tutor who will manipulate your entire life <laughs> since birth. Or, or remake society <laughs> in the image of ancient Sparta where men and women um, never meet. Good. Good yeah. options. Because <laughs> see why you call him a romantic and not a prag- pragmatic, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> He has like these really interesting uh, contrasts that he makes with, usually with Paris. Okay, so there's two kinds of society. There's this like noble, good, sex segregated society where like men are men and women are women and they're chaste and everything. And then there's Paris. And Paris is like men and women, they're hanging out together, they're in the salons, they're flirting with each other, they're almost on like a footing of equals. They're kind of the same kind of person. And Rousseau just thinks this is the worst. This is not only, this is bad for so many reasons. Um, But one of them is that you can't, you don't have enough distance to fall in love. It's unromantic, even if it's flirtatious. Yeah, so you don't have that, you you don't, so in order to project on someone, they have to be far away enough. Yeah. For that image to uh, to be clear. And also it's like, I think that maybe Rousseau thinks that at bottom, men and women are pretty similar. And if we hang out too much, like, we'll figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually really gender egalitarian, but he just thinks it's a bad thing. Yeah, he thinks descriptively men and women can be very similar. um, But normatively, they should be different. So therefore, we should keep men and women separate to, like, accentuate their differences. He thinks thinks in the city... um, Women become more mannish. They go out. They start, like, writing books and stuff. (laughs) The horror. I know. (laughs) And men, they become womanish fuckboys who, like, become, like, really (laughs) charming. They know how to, like, be agreeable to women and flirt and say everything that they need to say. But they they never fall in love with them. So no one is, like, shy and giggish. No, he has, he, has this, he has this other passage. I'm going to try and quote it from memory, so it may be a little bit wrong, but it's describing uh, life in Paris, okay, for, for women. And he says, In Paris, uh, every woman gathers around her a harem of men more womanish than she. <laughs> and um, these, like, agreeable fops, they know how to please her, and they know how to be agreeable, but they... They can't give her the one thing she really needs, which is love. So, yeah, that's his attitude is that it turns like hanging out with women too much actually makes guys more, gives them better manners and makes them nicer to hang out with. But they become fuckboys who can't really commit. Okay, I don't, that's a little hard to understand. I do understand sort of the the appeal of someone who's mysterious, right? Uh So, you can't really talk to them. Like that's where all these like little romance novels are based on. Like the stable boy who doesn't say much, but he has like <laughs> muscles or whatever. Like is like is that what he wants? Like uh, for yeah, for us to be able to project masculinity on someone, but then if we get to know them, all that, all that sort of. Um, all those stereotypes of what a guy should be, those disappear. You get to uh-huh. know the guy himself, and that's actually like more more of a normal human being closer to you than this this mysterious other. Yeah, yeah, that draws I, I think... you in or what? 
Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. The noble and mute, <laughs> muscly stable boy. Okay, so I get that, but what about us? I mean, uh, we live in a society, Cliff, and we're around each other all the time. So would Rousseau then say that there is no hope for us of ever finding real, true, romantic love like that? Because we know each other too well. Yeah. Too well, exposed. I- <laughs> Rousseau probably would because he is tremendously pessimistic uh, about modernity and about the way the world is going. And he is into hyperbole. He exaggerates. He presents the most extreme possible case. And that's like why his writing is pretty. Yeah, that's true. So, so he would say there's no hope for us and we live in like a moral abyss. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we know that people like still catch feelings in gender mixed societies, even in Paris, <laughs> <laughs> even there, e- even there. I mean, in my, in my own life I have, um, and to see more how that works. That's why I wanted to bring in a second author today. And that's, uh, that's Marcel Proust. And the reason I fu- like the reason he's like part of the story for me biographically is that when I was doing all this research on Rousseau at night, I was like kind of, I was reading Proust's long novel, uh, in search of lost time, which is like insane seven volume thing. And, uh, it's yeah, amazing. I've heard of it. <laughs> Um, you know, I think it would make a good audiobook because it's just like having like the most interesting, smartest guy you've ever met just whisper you to sleep every night talking about That's his hot. childhood, flowers, I don't know, everything, <laughs> <laughs> jealousy. Uh, nice. And, and anyway, the reason I bring him up is because I think he has a Rousseauian theory of love. He seems to think that like desire imagination and everything work in the same way. They're linked up in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's not telling us to like go back to Sparta. <laughs> okay. All right. So he's telling us how we can maybe still achieve this kind of fantastical um, romantic state, but in, a, in, in modern society. So. Okay. Well, well, hold on a minute. He's a, um, when I say he has the same psychology as Rousseau, the same theory of love, he thinks that desire and love work the same way. And so he describes how that operates in modern gender mixed society. And mm-hmm. he doesn't have all this really like sexist political baggage that Rousseau has because he's not a moralist. He's not a political theorist. He's just trying to like describe his experience. So it's less preachy that way. Mm-hmm. But... You know, you asked whether he's showing us how to how to achieve true love in society, and he's he's as pessimistic as Rousseau almost. Right? Um, I'm glad he, you brought him up then. He he illustrates how romance and imagination work, but he also illustrates like how quickly it can fall apart for the same reasons uh, Rousseau thinks. But let me read you let me read you a quote to illustrate both of those those points. Okay, all right. In this passage, Proust is describing how. Our imagination wants what it can't have, and that can make passing strangers very interesting to us. Quote, If our imagination is set going by the desire for what we cannot possess, its flight is not limited by a reality perceived in these casual encounters in which the charms of the passing stranger are generally in direct ratio to the swiftness of our passage. 
if night is falling and the carriage is moving fast, whether in town or country, there's not a single torso, disfigured like an antique marble by the speed that tears <laughs> us away in the dusk that blurs it, that does not aim at our heart. From every crossing, from the lighted interior of every shop, the arrows of beauty. End quote. So he's basically saying it's a direct ratio. The faster we pass by someone, the more likely we are to like them. Oh, he's French. How did they get such a such a reputation for being romantics? This is kind of horrible. <laughs> well, wait till you hear the second part of the quote where he talks about how quickly these uh, arrows of love can lose their edge. Quote, Had I been free to get down from the carriage and to speak to the girl whom we were passing, I might perhaps have been disillusioned by some blemish on her skin, which from which from the carriage I had not distinguished, whereupon any attempt to penetrate into her life would have seemed suddenly impossible. For beauty is a sequence of hypotheses which ugliness cuts short when it bars the way that we could already see opening into the unknown. Perhaps a single word which she might have uttered, or a smile, would have furnished me with an unexpected key or clue with which to read the expression on her face, to interpret her bearing, which would have immediately become commonplace. Blah, 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 blah. To strip our pleasures of imagination is to reduce them to their own dimensions. That is to say, nothing. Nice. I, I love this because a lot God of it damn. is familiar, right? <laughs> like, Dude knows what he's doing, you know? He, <laughs> I don't know what, I've never read Bruce, but um, now I know what the fuss is about. God. Yeah. Um, He's good. One of the best, um, I would say. But I want to ask you about this passage because I kind of think that I see it happening a lot in life. This idea that a single word or phrase or gesture can make completely understand a person, think they're commonplace, and therefore lose attraction for them completely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it's a, oh, you're... One of those people. <laughs> yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, I was just thinking, is this a male gaze thing, you know? Like uh, women should be pretty and uh, so men can admire them. But then I thought, no, because I don't know if you've ever seen Sex in the City, but that's a show that's basically just about that moment of disillusion, you know? Uh -huh. So they they all meet a promising guy and then um, in the third act, in the, in the second act, he does something weird, but they're like, Ugh. and in the third act, it just gets weirder. Uh -huh. And then they have to get the fuck out of there. And it's and it's all, and all the, so the disillusion all have their own uh, cute little characters. So it's like, it's about constructing these the fantasies, uh, these illusions, and then having them like progressively through yeah, the episode, yeah. just smash up against reality. Just stripped away. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's actually really cynical. Um, but I, yeah, I think that happens to men as much as it happens to women. So I don't, yeah, I don't think um, that uh, women project less somehow than... Right, well, in Proust, in Proust they don't. Um, well, yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, it's for everyone, his, his same theory. I, I notice this online, right? People like will use very small details about people to like reduce them to a type. Like, I don't know, like, 
guys who like Rick and Morty or like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, if, if a woman says like, oh, you know, I, I believe everything happens for a reason, or they mention like their star <laughs> sign, people might like make assumptions about them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or anything like some, like someone says something about free speech and you've decided that that's racist or something. And then <laughs> right. they immediately become this libertarian kind of nightmare person. Um, happens <laughs> all the time. All the time. Yeah, it's cruel. We should, you should, but we can't help do that. Maybe. So let me ask ask you this. I before you told me about all this, uh, you know, French um, French theory of love. Uh, I would have thought that maybe if you got to know a person, uh, maybe when they were younger or through, I don't know, your family or your, you know, use a brother's friend or whatever, it, you you got to know them in a different uh, context. And so when they say something, it's harder to reduce them to a type. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So so then it's actually the the lack of exposure to someone that makes you reduce them to a type, not the overexposure. Right. Okay. So yeah, I can I can see I can definitely see how how that works. But what's interesting is that reducing people to a type can make them commonplace and boring. But it also is kind of works the other way, right? Because when he talks about people he likes, it's usually because they're a type and there's something that like evokes something in his right. imagination, yeah, right? It's yeah, like yeah. A, a, a country girl from the seaside and to be with her is like to be with all of the associations of like that seaside town and vacation and this kind of life. Um, I mean, uh, <clears throat> as, a, as a woman with a Middle Eastern background, I... Uh... I have on occasion uh, <laughs> profited <laughs> from uh, yeah people uh, you know projecting a certain type on you you know Go I'm on. just I mean yeah. I you know sometimes it's really annoying but other times it just saves the trouble of having to be attractive in any <laughs> other way <laughs> and you know that fantasy is you know that happens a lot actually and um uh -huh. When I figured it out, I started doing it on purpose because it's, you know, at a certain point you're just done. You're offering a taste of the Orient. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I, I mean, I, I get what they're talking about. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a delicate balance, but sometimes it's not. It's it's also a hack, right? Sometimes. Yeah, I don't know if it's a really a hack. I don't look exotic, but I used to be an academic, and sometimes people would find out what you do for a living. They say, "Oh, you're a." your prof and you could see the wheels of their erotic imagination start to turn. Um, <laughs> and sometimes they'd ask to come to lecture. Sometimes they'd even uh, request to come to office hours. Oh, seriously? A lot of times I'm sure people were just being supportive or interested, but there were times when I was pretty sure there was more going on and other male friends of mine with other jobs like doctor or whatever, have told me the same thing. So it's definitely a thing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the Indiana Jones fantasy, right? You're like, if yeah. you, you don't, you don't, you, you, you're not around, you know, tweed clad, uh, you know, stuffy um, academics a lot, then that's, that is exotic, you know, and interesting or whatever. Yeah. And it's a type. But then, yeah, it's a type. Exactly. But then if you have been around them, a lot, then you really want the other Indiana Jones, you know, the grave robbing, yeah. 
what is it like a leather jacket and whip whip wielding mm-hmm, adventurer mm-hmm. guy so yeah i could types can be hot i agree um yeah so so that's basically like uh rousseau's and proust's theory of love you fall in love with your own imagination getting to know other people is kind of going to break it and um i don't know what do you what do you think about that uh i mean i like i like the theory because it's an interesting theory that is not um usually when we talk about when we talk about love um but it sounds really lonely though like if that is really if you're it's nice to contemplate, but if that is the idea of love you're walking around with, I don't see how you can even uh, really take any relationship you're in seriously, right? So, like, if right. you know that, <laughs> like, if you already know, <laughs> oh, this is just my fantasy and it'll be fleeting, and, you know, once I know, I get to know this person, then aren't you always going to end up... Um, not with someone because yeah yeah you 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 can never be with the one you love because it's impossible to love the one you're with yeah exactly so then like marriage is out of the question moving in together is out of the question (laughs) like i don't know you could definitely move in the proust protagonist he moves in with his girlfriend and uh gets really bored of her right and there's this absolutely wild anecdote about Rousseau uh, that I want to tell you. So I want to hear it. (laughs) You know, he didn't really get along very well in society. Towards the end of his life, he had alienated most of his friends and he started writing these loneliness, solitude-themed autobiographical books. And he's just like talking about, you know, being alone. He writes one called The Reveries of a Solitary Walker. Um... (laughs) And so he's just like walking through the forest, doing botany, looking at plants and just saying, you know, I'm all alone. There's there's no one left to talk to. Everyone's betrayed me. I'm just here by myself, me and Rousseau. Uh, and he even writes a set of dialogues between Jean-Jacques and Rousseau of just him talking to himself. <laughs> and that whole he's so time nice. he's talking about being completely all by himself alone. He's actually with his partner of like decades who who bore him five children that he wow. sent to all to an orphanage. No. Yeah. Damn. Such a bastard. But I yeah, get, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look, I get this kind of. Cause like the same qualities that make him such a good uh critic of the modern age. It's also the same qualities that make him like a horrible boyfriend, right? <laughs> Go on. Because, because like he can't live in this world. It's, it's unbearable to him. And all that, like, I can't live with this energy. He, he like compulsively puts into his writing, right? Puts into his yeah. imagination. And um, so he's always constructing alternative versions or... Um, just thinking about how it's this is not right. It's not supposed to be like this, right? And I think being with someone requires <laughs> a little bit of a acceptance of the real world. 
willingness to cope with reality. Yeah, <laughs> some like a little bit of reality would be nice. And um, I think he just doesn't want to like this. He's just he'd rather make up a girl and write a 700 page novel about her than then actually a date a girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rousseau was like, by all accounts, a bastard. Um, but I don't think this theory is necessarily uh, a theory for bastards because Proust, he, he had a lot of friends. He got along. He had romantic relationships. He was not a social disaster in the way Rousseau was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you still see something like this, you know, coming out in relationship advice today. Like really popular stuff. Uh, do you know, do you know Esther Perel? Uh, yeah, I think so. The woman who wrote about sometimes you should have an affair to spice up your relationship. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, not exactly that, but fair summary. Um, she has a really big podcast called How Shall We Begin. She's written two best-selling books. Um, a popular relationship advice lady. And right. her thesis, she quotes Proust. You know, her thesis is basically <laughs> that there's a crisis in uh, modern marriage and the reason is exactly because modern spouses have become too familiar with each other. Uh, because they want their partners to be like romantic partners, but also their partners in buying a house and taking care of the children and washing the toilet. Um, right. and, and you spend so much time together that you lose that romantic spark. It's hard to feel it, despite a lot of romantic comedies, it's hard to feel it for your best friend while they're still being your best friend. Right. And also, one of the first published pieces I ever wrote uh, had kind of the same theory in it. Really? Really. After I was finished this trip to Paris where I was reading all this Rousseau, um, I went back to Montreal and my friend had started a magazine and I wrote a piece on it called Speaking in Tongues. And it was basically about love in a second language. I had, hmm. I had just been to Europe, right? I had been in Paris and I met all these couples who were from different countries who didn't share a first language. And so... Yeah, exactly. Erasmus couples. Um, and I, so I wrote this jokey article uh, with the idea that, you know, everyone always tells us that communication is the key to a good relationship. But actually, what these international romances demonstrate is that more communication is not necessarily better. <laughs> and that and that sometimes oh, your relationship breaks up not because you've said too little but because you've said too much i see i see right so look it was a, it was a kind of cynical <laughs> jokey article that i wrote when you know i was i was much younger and it was supposed to be that way and i was laughing at these couples but i was also i was also laughing at my own expense because Anna comes back into the story. Ooh. During that second trip to Paris, I, I met up with a mutual friend of ours who was, who was her roommate when, when we lived in Paris the first time. And 
we had lunch, we caught up, and this friend of ours said, Anna got your email. I had sent her an email at some point in the past four years, you know, just how are you doing, whatever. And uh, she thought it was really sweet, and she wanted to answer, but her English isn't strong enough. Mm. (laughs) And so (laughs) I start laughing in the cafe. I am cracking up, and our friend Ida is like, "What, what are you laughing at? And I was laughing because that was the first time, like, I had forgotten that this person who had such a huge crush on, like, did not even speak English. (laughs) (laughs) I liked her so much that I forgot she she didn't share a language with me. (laughs) Oh, wow. This makes it so much more romantic somehow. I don't know why. Go on, why? Why? Tell me, Russo. I don't know, because it was such an intense crush. And yeah. I, I guess just part of me, even now we've gone through all of the theory, just kind of assumed that uh, it wouldn't be because of that. But like, I don't know. Well, look, I mean, at the time, she had a little bit of French. I My French was okay. And also <laughs> we had this third person around who would translate for us, right? Oh, this is perfect. Um, and so, yeah, we, I had this big crush and affair, um, with a woman that I now on reflection realize (laughs) I'd never had a real conversation with. (laughs) Oh God. I just, okay. So this is why I think it's really romantic because I'm just imagining that the sex must have been so hot for you to not even have noticed. But now I just feel guilty because you were 20. (laughs) I don't really want to think about it. I, I was I was pretty excited about it, uh, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this. This is this is something. So wait, did 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 you like, I don't know, hold each other's hand and walk around along the sand or something? Oh no, we couldn't because we were you... a secret. Okay. All right. Because right. of her other thing. So but did you have moment and like it, were you just sleep like when you saw each other was it just you were sleeping together or did you also have like these couple moments you know these no actually because she had another guy i, I was a secret we couldn't spend that much time together uh, in total and we weren't even supposed to be seen in public or like together by other people in our house so yeah no no <laughs> <laughs> no hand holding and sense strolling um, for us. <laughs> so then, uh, why is why is it still such a, a, a such an intense memory? Because I'll tell you, I have had maybe like brief but like intense sort of physical, sexual sort of connections with people, um, uh-huh. but I don't really remember them afterwards that much. You know, there is no, there isn't that kind of sort of Proustian. Uh, rumination or whatever. <laughs> like nostalgic, romantic <laughs> yeah. filter. Yeah. 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 It's not like I ever pined for Anna, right? This is not, um, <laughs> I'm not like nostalgic about it in that, in that way. Uh, but it's really interesting to me for, for two reasons. 
One is just at the time, it was really intense, right? I really did like her, and that was cool. It was exciting. You know, I was 20, great place. And the other is just, like, what a weird puzzle and and (laughs) counterexample to... uh, uh, Let me explain this way. The theory of love we were talking about at the beginning where, like, two people get to know each other and they connect and they communicate a lot. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, I want that. Soulmates. I think <laughs> yeah. I, I was brought up, I don't know, that's what I think relationships are supposed to be about. Yeah. And that was, like, my working theory of, like, that is why I want to fall for someone. <laughs> but <laughs> then yeah, I have this yeah. example of a girl that I definitely had these feelings for. Um, but <laughs> I definitely did not have any kind of communicative connection. Like, right. we hardly knew each other. So, so, so like, what? I want to believe the one thing, right? <laughs> but then, but then, like, I read Rousseau, and I'm like, oh, Rousseau's theory of love is so dark. Like, right, it's everything. Right. I'm the same age as like when Emile went to Paris. There's obstacles. There's other people in the way, and it it worked. <laughs> <laughs> So you think, I mean, that's the lesson here. The lesson is uh, we want the soulmate theory to be right. But actually, if we go through our experiences, maybe Rousseau's lonely, lonely theory of (laughs) projecting fantasies on someone until you die um, is actually more accurate. Is that what you're saying? I think there's something to that. I do. <laughs> yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> I still, I don't want it to be totally true, but I do, I do think that they both, Rousseau and Proust, were onto something about desire and <laughs> imagination. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you know that, if you know, uh-huh. now, now that you know, now that you've convinced yourself or Rousseau has convinced you, the, or the data has convinced you that this is <laughs> <laughs> this is the case. Are you ever gonna be able to like if you have you know wild romantic uh, relations with someone whose language you do speak? <laughs> are you gonna like um, not trust that anymore? Is that is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. That- okay. So the the dark way, the dark way of putting insight right is that. A lot of people say, trust your heart, uh, trust your gut. But <laughs> what, what my experience with Anna, backed by the theoretical apparatus of Rousseau, has taught me is that my gut's a liar. <laughs> and it's trying to set me up with people that I really don't belong with. And that I should be deeply suspicious of everything it tries to tell me. Because... Oh my god! It's it's operating on very different principles than my uh, reflective idea of love as a connection. It- god, this is <laughs> is this is your this is so you to like take this beautiful memory of a, of an amazing uh, affair that you had in Paris and it's all very pretty and Proustian, and then say never again. Hashtag I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying never again. Let's put it, try to say it in a less uh, aggressively dark way. <laughs> I, I'm not saying never again. I'm not saying don't listen to your heart. I listened to it. It was great. It was a very positive memory. Okay? And I'm not saying 
don't try to build a long-term intimate connection with someone that you know and connect with. I'm just saying that those two different things, right, <laughs> um, don't necessarily go together and may, there may actually be trade-offs between the, t- between the two. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not the only one who thinks so, right? That's like the premise of Perel's whole thing is that, you know, right. too, much, too much changing diapers together is going to mean, <laughs> uh, you know, you're just not going to want to fuck. <sighs> yeah, I guess that's very sensible when growing up and... I'm going to say I'll remember that, but no, I'm just going to forget that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's that's the other good news, yeah. that your heart's such a good liar that you don't have to worry about this, like, theory being a bummer. Because right, when the time right. comes, you will forget it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> theory is basically, in most cases, it's irrelevant. So like You can't this, do this... philosophy and politics at the same time. <laughs> and you can't do philosophy and love at the same time. And don't worry because you won't want to <laughs> like if you have the feelings you're not gonna you're not gonna talk yourself <laughs> out of it using my idiotic <laughs> argument for <laughs> of all people okay well that makes me feel a little better um happy valentine's day <laughs> well, good. happy valentine's day sep Thanks, Sep, for coming on the show. Thank you, Ali, for editing advice. Thank you, Anna, for a fun and puzzling affair. And thanks, Ida, for getting on the phone with me to reminisce about Paris in 2001 under the pretense of research. And thanks for listening. If you like the show, let us know you're out there. Follow us on social. Email us. Let us know that you are not just a projection of my own imagination. We'll be back soon with scripted episodes about the Republic and a new series on thought experiments with Paul Sagar. Look out for it on your feed.